Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Let's talk about what's happened in Istanbul. The decision by the Workers' Party-controlled election board to rerun the mayoral elections there has invigorated the opposition. The opposition candidate Ekrem Imamogolu from the Republican People's Party is portraying the election rerun as a battle for Turk democracy in Turkey. Ayla Jean Yaki is a freelance journalist based in Istanbul who's covered Turkey for nearly two decades. She's been writing about the Istanbul mayor's race for the Financial Times. Thanks for joining us, Ayla Jean Yaki. Thanks for having me. You know, I was reading about this, and I'm really kind of surprised at the reaction of the opposition. Uh, I would think I would, if it was me, I would be dispirited and feel like, well, the ruling party does not want, will not allow me to be mayor. But in this case, the opposition has really jumped in there. It looks invigorated. It looks uh, bigger than ever. How, what happened there? Well, the um, opposition candidate who did eke out this narrow win when the election was first held in March campaigned on a largely positive message. For instance, he refused to um, attack President Erdogan despite the fusillade of attacks that Erdogan launched against him. Uh, He describes his campaign as um, one of radical love. Basically, it's an attempt to try and uh, cast his election as, a, as an opportunity for hope and for change. And since that delivered a result back in March, he's decided to continue with that. So he's he's got a, a slogan already that's a, a trending hashtag that um, everything is going to be all right. So that's what he's campaigning on um, in the rerun election. And it sounds like a lot of um, celebrities in Turkey, a lot of other top politicians, the smaller parties in, um, around who ran in the Istanbul mayor's race all have kind of thrown their lot behind his, his message. Yeah, he actually um, explicitly called out to both uh, artists, um, musicians, actors and whatnot, as well as businessmen to um, rally to his defense. That was um, in his speech after the decision was announced on Monday that the election would be rerun. He said, now is not the time um, to to be quiet. Now is the time to speak up. And in following that uh, call, many of them began um, – tweeting everything's going to be all right with the hashtag um, in Turkish. And uh, yeah, he got quite a response. Now, the ruling party itself, we've heard um, President Erdogan, he's often been quoted as saying, well, he, the person who runs Istanbul runs Turkey or that, that kind of thing. Um, and they're, they're making some moves that sound like they're going to you know, do something different in this uh, election campaign. What's, what's their strategy here? Well, they um, haven't been terribly explicit yet on on how they plan to close this margin. It's not a very big margin. Um, Imam Olu won by about 13,000 votes. That's out of 8.5 million ballots cast. So they don't have a lot of, they don't have a huge deficit to overcome. Uh, one area that they said they're going to focus on are those voters who didn't show up, uh, at the March vote, many of them out of protest. So they might be, uh, longtime AKP supporters, the ruling party's, um, n- initials. However, they're, they're so disenchanted with the handling of um, the economy. Turkey's now in, in the throes of a recession and is facing um, 20% inflation, unemployment's above 15%. So many 
people felt there's only one way to express their discontent, and that was by not voting for the ruling party's candidate. That doesn't mean that they were able to bring themselves to vote for the opposition. So one thing that they're saying they're going to do is trying to reach out to them to encourage them to say, no, we really do need your support, so please come and, and cast your votes on June 23rd. One of the things that uh, is interesting is to watch what the Kurdish parties are doing and the Kurdish parties themselves uh, seem to have had a similar thing happen to them in in the region. Uh, their mayoral victories were annulled and taken away from them. Can you explain the dynamic there? It's true. Um, you know, with most eyes trained on Istanbul, the plight of uh, opposition mayors in Turkey's mainly Kurdish southeast has been overlooked. Um, six elected mayors have not been given their certif- certification to take office. And the con- reason behind that is quite controversial. The high election board determined that because they had been previously dismissed from government jobs um, under an emergency decree that they were somehow disqualified from becoming mayor and instead gave the mandate to the runners-up, which have been ruling party um, candidates. Um, The Kurdish party argues you approved their candidacy to the election board. You knew that um, they had been previously dismissed from their jobs and you said they could still run. So this is blatantly unfair. And they've appealed to the constitutional court to have that overturned, but it's an uphill battle. Um, The Kurdish party has seen a long-running crackdown um, from Erdogan that's been going on for about four years now. Uh, And for a lot of Turks, um, there is a sense of, well, that's far from the center that's in the southeast, and frankly, that they're Kurds um, has made it less of an issue for them. For supporters of Imamola back here in Istanbul, there's a, still a sense of shock that their candidate could see some of the same treatment that actually Kurds have, have been experiencing for some time now. I'm talking with Ayla Jean Yaki, a journalist based in Istanbul, who's been writing about the Istanbul mayor's race for the Financial Times. Uh, Well, does that mean that the opposition that is in Istanbul from Imam Golu and and the Republican People's Party, do they support the Kurds and their – um, the mayors who've been disenfranchised in the Kurdish territory? Because the Kurds are saying, well, we we support you. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. Um, they've been not particularly vocal in their criticism. They have spoken about it, but it's not by any means a central message that they're trying to convey. They're walking a very tight, it's a tightrope, um, because on one hand, the overwhelming number of voters for Imam Olu are traditional CHP voters, and they tend to be middle class, they're Turkish, and they're a little bit nationalist. And so in order to keep together his very disparate coalition, he has to maintain some of the sort of nationalist values. He's made um, more than any of his predecessors in the party, uh, many other prominent figures in the CHP. He has reached out to Kurdish voters. And he says, um, he told me in an interview a few weeks ago that he felt he had a very special bond now with Kurdish voters because they likely swung the vote for him in the in the first election. But again, it's a balancing act for him. On one hand, he 
wants to defend them, perhaps stick up for them, hope hope that they'll vote for him once more. But on the other, t- other hand, he can't alienate nationalist voters. Hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask about also about the reaction of the international community. Uh, the EU seems to be more outspoken about this than the U.S. I read the German foreign minister called the election rerun incomprehensible. The U.S. Uh, has had a more nuanced reaction with verbiage about um, uh, Turkey's long history with democracy and that kind of thing. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you make of what's going on there? That's a good point. Um, we've been reporters here. We've been keeping our eyes out for um, a response from the State Department. And the one that came felt a bit feeble, actually. It just said that it took note of um, the extraordinary decision um, that was taken to rerun the election. Uh, the U.S. and Turkey have an incredibly complicated um, relationship at this particular moment in time. They are um, at loggerheads over a number of issues, including policy in Syria, Turkey's plans to buy a Russian air defense um, missile system that the U.S. is worried could compromise NATO's security. Uh, and there are a number of U.S. citizens that are being held in Turkish prisons um, on coup-related charges, as well as workers at the U.S. embassy and consulate. And so for the U.S., I think that they're trying to manage this, uh, these very complicated issues and sort of come out and um, in, a, in a forceful way criticize an election. They realize that could also possibly backlash. Uh, a lot of, criti- when criticism of Tur- when criticism hits Turkey from outside, the government is able to kind of twist that and say they're trying to interfere with our internal affairs. These are foreign forces that are, again, trying to undermine our national unity. So it's a, it's a delicate uh, balancing act for the U.S. government. One of the things about the Istanbul um, mayor's office is it seems to control such a gigantic budget. And, I, you know, in reading about it, it's, uh, it's the size of the Turkish military budget. Is that – if if the opposition were to gain control, is that really uh, such a gigantic blow to the ruling party that it um, it can't really recover momentum and, and is going to uh, have the, the ruling party on its heels? It's twofold. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, the, it's a $4 billion annual budget, and that is quite large. And, and what comes with that are quite lucrative contracts for companies that are close to the administration uh, to build roads, to dig tunnels, uh, as well as jobs um, for people who are close to the party that's in, in control. Um, there are these patronage networks that exist in which um, businesses our loyalty um, is is earned through these contracts, but it's also important to note that Istanbul is truly the commercial and cultural center of the country. Um, it's a city of at least 16 million people, so one out of five voters lives in the city, and it's very much a bellwether for the rest of the country. There's a Turkish cliche that goes, whoever wins Istanbul wins Turkey. And President Erdogan um, surely remembers that his own career on the national stage was launched here in 1994 when he was elected mayor. From then, he went on to become prime minister and now president. He's been in power since uh, 2003. So I think that there's also both this economic side to it, and that's 
very important. There's also, it can't be understated, the symbolic importance of controlling the city. Ayla Jinyaki is a journalist in Istanbul who's covered Turkey for nearly two decades. She's been writing about the Istanbul mayor's race for the Financial Times. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's been happening there. Thanks for having me. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Uber and Lyft strike yesterday raised an interesting question. Is any city doing a good job of regulating these things? Andrew Wolf has surveyed what 80 U.S. cities have done about rideshare. He's a Ph.D. candidate in sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He studies worker organizing in the gig economy, and his article in The Jacobin is The City is Ours, Not Ubers. Thanks for joining us, Andrew Wolf. Great. Thanks for having me. Well, when you, I, you know, I'm always under the impression that different cities are doing things differently out there and they're trying to make Uber fit into their transportation vision in the way they like. Um, when you survey 80 cities, uh, is that a reality or am I dreaming? Uh, yeah. So historically, uh, taxis have been uh, regulated by uh, every city individually. And so the response of Uber has been uh, to Uber has been very different in different parts of the country and in different cities. How many cities are actively just are, are engaged in regulating? Would you say? So um, it's kind of a question of regulating what. So in terms of actually dealing with the labor issues, very few. Um, but uh, most cities have kind of. Uh, I found took at least consumer protection issues. So, you know, you've heard a lot about um, these cases of uh, assault by drivers um, and that's caused a lot of cities to take notice of the company's more lax uh, background check provisions. So you've seen a big push there. So it's kind of depends on what you're saying they're regulating. Well, in your article in the Jacobin, it says only 19 had strong regulatory or enforcement responses to Uber's uh, illegal entry into their cities. Yeah, exactly. So um, in the 80 cities that I I looked at, only 19 had taken um, some kind of strong action, either uh, enforcing existing laws or trying to pass new laws. You know, the strongest is probably New York, where they've capped the number of Ubers on the road and required a minimum wage. But I found in the majority of cities, you know, they took either no or extremely weak action, only kind of requiring people register with the city. Um, It sounds like the idea to cap the number of um, ride shares on the road (laughs) would seem to be a a good place to start, doesn't it? I mean, there's there's a gajillion of these things, uh, and that seems to be the, the, the most obvious complaint about them. Yeah, and that was what I was trying to get out of my article, too. You know, obviously for the drivers themselves, with the huge number of cars on the road, it means lower wages, but it harms the rest of us as well. It, you know, vastly increases traffic, and that increase in traffic and the increase in cars also puts a lot of pollution and CO2 in the air as well. And and, and the wages, uh, I mean, the wages go down when there's more cars. Yeah, so um, a survey of... JP Morgan, uh, the JP Morgan Chase did of their uh, Chase bank account holders. Uh, they found that from 2013 to 2017, uh, people who worked for rideshare apps saw their wages go down 53%. Uh, and, uh, and another survey showed that um, most drivers were making you know less than $10 an hour. 
And this is really interesting contrast to the, you know the going public of these organizations, and they're going to the people who own them are going to make billions and billions of dollars. Uh, they're going to become extremely valuable people. Yeah, and that was actually why the strike was initially called. It was uh, first called for by the um, new union in L.A., and then uh, cities across the world uh, hopped on board in solidarity. But in uh, the lead-up to going public, Uber cut uh, fares or the amount that um, drivers were getting paid by 25% to kind of boost the value to investors. So they were literally taking from the workers to make sure that their IPO was uh, making them as rich as possible. And uh, how strong is the Los Angeles uh, resistance to this? Um, I mean, what's remarkable about the Los Angeles resistance, you know, interviewing them for this article, um, they, you know, didn't really exist a year ago. And um, they said going into this Uber strike uh, in the last year, they've uh, signed up uh, 4,500 members at this point. So, um, you know, there's clearly an appetite for this in my survey uh, of those 80 cities as well. In a a majority of cities, um, there was some kind of protest by drivers. Um, and you're seeing uh, organizations forming. Um, there's a new organization in Chicago, the Chicago Rideshare Advocates, and you have a longstanding union in New York. So, you know, you're seeing unions pop up across the country. Now, it's interesting how Uber can, uh, I guess I call it fight back. Can can they do like surge pricing for Ubers and Lyfts during during a day like that when there's a strike. And it sounds like that's what happened yesterday. And, and some oh, people yeah. decided, yeah, well, I'll, for that much money, I'll drive. Yeah, so um, you saw, I mean, it's hard to you know n- know just how these impacts work. And um, it was different in different cities. But yeah, there was, I was seeing a lot on the driver forums uh, yesterday and online. Um, lots of surge pricing, surge pricing at rates that drivers had never seen before during the strike yesterday. And then customers as well. I know, you know, I'm on uh, all these mailing lists. The companies were sending me lots of coupons for yesterday to try to get the strike to not, you know, be as impactful. The title of your article in the Jacobin is The City is Ours, Not Ubers. What, what, did, what do you mean by the city is ours? Um, yeah, so, I mean, I built the article around a uh, kind of famous uh, quote from the geographer David Harvey, uh, this notion of the right to the city. And the idea of the right to the city is that um, the city the city should be a human right and we should all have a right to active democratic participation in it. Um, and the reason that I chose to highlight this for the Uber strike is what um, I've been really sh- surprised about is unlike traditional private sector unions, the uh, unions, especially in New York and LA, they're not just um, making demands on the co- their companies. They're also making demands on the state to step in um, and take action against their uh, employers' abuses. So, uh, and as you know, we just discussed the the impacts of Uber go beyond just the workers. You know, the reason we regulated taxis in our cities traditionally was not just the worker issues, but the um, consumer protection, the traffic, the pollution. And so the, the this strike was not just a strike against Uber. It was a strike against our cities to take action. You know, it seems like rideshare came on so fast. It just happened in a, a heartbeat. And did cities not really get get what was going on? 
Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the you know the technology is new. Um, you you couldn't have done this kind of thing before cell phone technology and GPS location. Um, but the other thing is, you know, the, these companies have a lot of money, so they're national, whereas you know each city is each city. Um, so they kind of couldn't coordinate in the same way that the companies could. Um, and you know, the technology is not the problem. It's the uh, the technology is good. It's nice to be able to order order a cab through your phone. It's the the problem is when you're ordering a cab through your phone in a way that harms people's livelihoods and you know uh, undermines other missions of the city. Now, uh, how did how do you think the rideshare organizations are going to react? I know a lot of people think, well, you know, Lyft is has better employment issues than Uber. Or it, 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 does it? Uh, do they respond to this in any way? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you 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 see it even in the way they've been talking around these IPOs. I mean, these employment issues are uh, a longstanding. Th- threat to their business model um, and there, there's going to have to be some kind of uh, redress for these issues so um, I think what's what, what you're seeing is you know they're 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 gonna have to kind of come to the table um, and address these issues with cities because cities are increasingly taking notice and taking action is there any like mayor in any city that you would point to as being really locked in on this um well, I mean, in New York, obviously, they 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 capped the number of cars last year, um, and uh, they're 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 gonna. T- it was only a year, or so it's coming up again in August, and so there's kind of a big push around that. Um, and then, you know, I I know uh, in Chicago too, the incoming mayor said that she was looking into uh, instituting these caps as well. Um, uh, and so, you know, those are kind of the the most obvious cases, but. You know these issues are being taken up in other places. You know, and um, places you might even be surprised. You know, I saw a lot of places in the South, like Louisiana, took you know pretty strong action when Uber came in. So um, it's well, it's broadly a concern of cities. We'll keep our eye on what's going on with uh, Uber, Lyft, and all the rideshare controversies. Thanks for joining us. Andrew Wolf has surveyed what 80 U.S. cities did about rideshare, and his article in The Jacobin is The City is Ours, Not Uber's. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about uh, the Philippines and the authoritarian situation there. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. May Day was pretty lively in the Philippines this year. Workers took to the street demanding wage hikes and the implementation of the expanded Maternity Leave Act, also the junking of a tax reform law. They also wanted President Duterte to keep his campaign promises he made two years ago on labor rights. The International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines has sponsored a tour of the U.S. of two activists, one of whom is a labor activist, and they're with me right now. Ed Cubello is the chairman of the Metro Manila chapter of the KMU, the May 1st movement. It's the largest labor center in the Philippines. Thanks for joining us, Ed. Thank you very much. And Mong Palatino is going to do the interpreting for Ed, and we'll talk with him about human rights and journalism in the Philippines in a moment. He's a Filipino blogger, activist, and former congressman. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
Ed, I wonder if you could tell me a little about labor rights in the Philippines right now. I was reading a statistic that said that 70% of the labor force can't join a union now. What is it like in the labor situation? Um, yung contractualization na tinatawag, um, ito ay pinapayagan ng batas. Ito yung masakit dito. Pero sila yung mga hindi po pwedeng sumali sa, sa union dahil ipinagbabawal silang sumali sa union. Uh, hindi rin sila pwedeng magtayo ng union. This refers to the problem of contractualization and the law actually permits it. It refers to non-regular workers or temporary workers who cannot join a union, cannot form a union, they work long hours without receiving any benefits, and if they get sick at work, they will not receive any compensation while working in unsafe conditions. Many workers are disappointed and angry because Duterte, when he was running for president in 2016, one of his campaign Banners is to end this practice of labor contractualization. But three years after that, he failed to fulfill his promise, and so this led to protests organized by workers across the country. Naglulunsad ng maraming protesta laban sa sa hindi niya pagtupad sa kanyang pangako. What is President Duterte's attitude towards an organization like yours? I heard that he called it a terrorist organization. Um, dahil nga sa maraming uh, naging popular yung uh, panawagan na maging uh, regular yung mga manggagawang kontraktual at dahil maraming ang nagpoprotesta at maraming naglulunsad ng welga para ipaglaban yung regular na hanap buhay at The call to end labor contractualization became popular, and so after Duterte failed to deliver on his promise, it led to numerous protests across the country. In 2018 alone, more than 200 protests and strikes were recorded across the Philippines. And then because of this protest, Duterte accused workers of being terrorists, of being the legal front of terrorist organizations. And on national television, he said workers are terrorists because the workers are terrorizing capitalists and big business. And after Duterte's public denunciation of KMU, it led to the arrest of several union leaders and labor organizers, with the police even planting evidence in the homes of and offices of union leaders. At tinataniman ng mga bala at baril ng mga state forces. May isang karanasan sa Musahamat Factory, farm workers ito, kung saan ay inaresto hinuli yung presidente ng union, vice president ng union. There's one case I want to highlight. It is the Musamahat Factory in uh, Southern Philippines. The president, vice president, and secretary of this labor union were arrested by the military, and the military imposed a condition for their release. They should sign a waiver that these leaders will be resigning from KMU and that they are surrenderists from a rebel group. These are just some of the cases where it illustrates how workers are being repressed in the Philippines under the Duterte government. Tinatakot para mapigil yung mga protesta at pahupain yung mga pagkilos ng mga manggagawa. Duterte had such sky-high approval ratings. I imagine some of the people in your union must have voted for him. I, is there a complete turnaround on him as a politician? Um, yung buong labor force kasi ng mga manggagawang Pilipino ay umabot ng 43 million. At kabilang dito yung mga agri-workers, kabilang din dito yung mga overseas Filipino workers, kung saan yung 43 million na ito... So there are 43 million workers, and Duterte actively courted the support of this uh, labor population. And that's why one of his campaign promises is to end labor contractualization. 
So yes, he is still popular. But many a rising number of workers are now frustrated because of his failure to fulfill his electoral pledge. I'm talking with Ed Cubello. He's the chair of the Metro Manila chapter of KMU. It's the May 1st movement, the largest labor center in the Philippines. Um, Ironically, you're taking this tour of the United States now and uh, trying to establish some connections in the United States. And you were here on May 1st, on May Day. Your labor union is named after what happened here on May 1st. What was it like? Um, yung Kilusang Mayo Uno na naging uh, organisasyon ng mga manggagawa noong 1980, ito ay isinunod sa pagkilala at uh, pagpupugay sa mga manggagawa na nagsimula. Established in 1980, the KMU was uh, founded and inspired by the labor struggles here in the U.S., in particular the uh, Haymarket Square uh, massacre where it led to the global campaign to have an eight-hour work. And so through our visit here in Chicago, we were able to meet with labor union leaders and uh, spoke to various community leaders. Was it impressive to see the cemetery and the statue at Haymarket? Because it's a pretty small statue for such a big event. Um, nung nagpunta kami sa, sa, sa cementerio, siyempre dahil uh, kapwa namin manggagawa yung mga nakahimlay dito, uh, tumatayo yung aking balahibo at nakikita ko yung, ano, yung kanilang... It was a memorable visit when we went to the cemetery and saw that uh, memorial dedicated to the martyrs and workers of the Haymarket uh, incident. And there were inscriptions, there were stories about what happened. And uh, I felt inspired visiting that uh, memorial because the, the labor rights, the labor issues that they fought for are among the labor rights that we are enjoying today. I felt agitated and almost cried when I saw the KMU marker at the Haymarket Memorial near the downtown together with other labor unions from across the world. To see the KMU plaque in the Haymarket uh, yeah. Memorial, uh, I felt inspired and uh, the feeling of solidarity is so strong with me. Upang makiisa at magkaroon ng mahigpit na solidarity sa lahat ng mga manggagawa dito sa U.S. How do you feel about the U.S. and the role it plays in the labor situation in the Philippines today? Um, sa kasalukuyang kasi, yung uh, mga police at militar kung saan ginagamit ng mga uh, kapitalista uh, kasabwat yung gobyerno sa pagwasak at pagdurog sa mga pagkilos at mga Some of the big uh, businesses in the Philippines are American corporations. Unfortunately, some of them are also capitalists which are hiring the police and the military to dismantle workers' protests. There is an incident of uh, banana plantation workers in Mindanao where the protest was uh, brutally dispersed by the police and the military. So most of the multinational corporations in the Philippines are United States-based corporations. And they are uh, located in factories, inside export processing zones. And inside these export processing zones, they have an industrial peace policy, meaning no union, no strike, and they employ cheap labor, They remit very small taxes to the municipal and national governments. In fact, aside from the manufacturing hubs, we also have problem with American call centers employing young people, but not one of them are a member of union. 
and uh, there are American call center companies which we are asking to recognize the right of Filipino workers to form their union and to respect the labor rights. Pero sa halip na kilalanin yung kanilang karapatan, kinikriminalisa yung mga leader at uh, tinatanggal. I'm talking with Ed Cabello. He's the chair of the Metro Manila chapter of the KMU, the May 1st movement, the largest labor center in the Philippines. And Mong Palatino's been interpreting for us, and he's a Filipino blogger, activist, former congressman. And I wanted to ask you a few general questions about the human rights situation in the Philippines, Mong, because I, I think everyone's so shocked at what has happened with the uh, crackdown on drugs in the Philippines. Almost 30,000 people who have died in connection with being uh, involved in the war on drugs. How do you fathom this? First, the police would dispute that number of 30,000. They would say only 5,000 were killed that's in the war on drugs. <laughs> yeah, even if you use that official figure, let's say that's true. That's still too big. And the war on drugs is not really the war on drugs. We call it the war on the poor because the victims are from poor families. So the problem with the war on drugs is that it is really a public health issue. But the government solution is really to arrest drug suspects and not just arresting, but extrajudicial killings. That's the real problem. You can be accused of being a drug suspect if you are at the wrong place and also if you are supporting the wrong political group. So the problem with the war on drugs is that it is used to launch a political crackdown against perceived critics and enemies of the president. Is it working? No. The president before promised when he was running for president that he will end the drug menace in three to six months. And then if he failed, he will resign. So that was in 2016. Early this year, the president admitted that the drug problem still persists and he needs a few more years to end the problem of illegal drugs. So he failed. His solution failed to address the illegal drug trade. Does the drug war look the same all over the Philippines or does it look different in different places? Most of the killings are taking place in urban areas. That's what happened in 2016 and 2017. But since last year, the war on drugs is being implemented also in rural areas. So last March 30, 14 farmers were killed in Negros Island, an island province in the central part of the Philippines. And 14 farmers were killed in this so-called joint operation of the police and military for an anti-drug operation. So we are very concerned about this because now the war on drugs is being used to suppress farmers, especially those who are simply demanding land reform. And so the massacre of farmers was done under the guise of promoting the president's uh, war on drugs. What about other aspects of the human rights agenda for the government? I know that there's been a huge crackdown on freedom of the press in the Philippines and that people have gone to jail. Indeed. Uh, the media is uh, restricted. For example, if media groups are providing a critical coverage of the war on drugs, the media groups can be accused by the president himself of promoting fake news, or if not, they are supporting drug cartels. So that's one problem. Another problem is that media killings continue to be a big problem in the Philippines, especially in the provinces. Radio broadcasters and local newspaper reporters are targeted by killings. Next, you have the, the government. 
filing uh, trump-up cases against uh, journalists and editors who are writing critically about the war on drugs and other controversial policies of the president. And then uh, Duterte has a cyber army of trolls manipulating public discourse, creating favorable public opinion to his controversial policies. How does something like that work? What are his cyber trolls like? So there was a study released by Oxford University in 2017 about world leaders with a cyber army. And Duterte admitted that he has a cyber army manipulating uh, public discourse. So this means trolls or a cyber army commenting on Facebook pages, social media pages, criticizing the policies of Duterte, and they will really threaten or uh, insult the critics of the president, including the media. Are there things that the U.S. could do that would help the situation in the Philippines? We are here in the U.S. because we attended the Human Rights Summit by Malaya and the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. And we were joined by many Filipino Americans and U.S. citizens in condemning the human rights abuses in the Philippines. And we used this opportunity to talk to your legislators. So now we are asking the Congress and the Senate to stop sending military aid and police aid to the Philippines because this money is being used to enable human rights abuses. It would also help if we will have a congressional investigation on the human rights situation in the Philippines to raise more awareness about what's happening in the Philippines. And we are very inspired by our trip here in the U.S. because we were able to talk to the labor councils, community leaders, migrant groups, various universities to raise awareness about what's happening in the Philippines. And they are really surprised to learn that the problem is more than just about the war on drugs. But the crackdown on the political opposition, the silencing of the media, the continuing martial law in the southern part of the Philippines, the killing of farmers and indigenous peoples. Tell us more about that, the killings of the farmers and the indigenous people. Yes, so the problem with the martial law in Mindanao, the government said it is about war on terror. But we believe it is really about suppressing the indigenous people's resistance to the entry of big mining corporations. Because martial law was imposed in the island in 2017. That's the second biggest island in the Philippines. And the martial law continues to be in effect up to this day. So the deployment of troops led to the displacement of the Lumad or our indigenous people who are resisting the entry of mining, palm oil plantations, and logging companies. And then you have our farmers who are simply demanding land reform, but they are being killed, they are being harassed, they are being accused of being communists. And the government's response is to militarize these communities, to impose food blockades in several communities, not just in Mindanao, but in other rural areas in the Philippines. How do you think the idea of not supporting the security forces and the military sounds to people in the executive branch in Washington, D.C. and the the U.S. military? I think they're worried a lot about China in the region. President Duterte is very involved with China in a way that the Philippines has not been before. Do you think that they would be reluctant to stop security aid because they're worried about losing the Philippines to China? 
we also heard that argument when we were in DC talking to some of the offices of our legislators. That's exactly the point they raised with us. And our response is, we are reminding them that the U.S. government is providing to the Philippines is not actually helping in establishing good relations and trust between the U.S. government and the Filipino people. Because many people know that the funds are being used to harass and kill people. The funds are being used to enable human rights abuses. And so we are also reminding the U.S. Congress about the U.S. support for the Marcos dictatorship in the 1970s. The people remember that. And when Marcos was ousted, the U.S. was also made to account for that support of uh, the government to the Marcos dictatorship. And so Duterte, yes, he is close to China, but he is also close to the U.S. He is friendly, very friendly. In fact, it's like a bromance between Duterte and Trump. And Duterte allowed U.S. troops, more than 3,500 last April 1, to participate in war games inside the Philippines. So he's close to the U.S. Do you have a long-term scenario about what you think might happen with President Duterte? Do you think he's uh, someone who can be voted out of office? This is a crucial year for Duterte. This is election year. This month, there will be midterm elections. We will be voting for a new set of senators and members of Congress. We fear that Duterte will do everything to dominate the two branches of Congress so that in the middle of the year, he can change the constitution and strengthen the executive, erode civil liberties, remove term limits that will allow him to run for president in 2022 because he has only one term and his term will end in 2022. So we believe this change of the constitution will be a priority of the Duterte government to establish an authoritarian rule. So we are very uh, vigilant about this and we fear that Duterte's next uh, legislative agenda will lead to more abuses. Mong Palatino is a Filipino blogger, activist, and former congressman. He's touring the U.S. with Ed Cabello from the Manila chapter of the KMU, the May 1st movement, the largest labor union in uh, the Philippines. And they're here with the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, who sponsored the tour. And if people want more information about the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, they can check out their website, I imagine. Indeed, they can check the social media pages of ICHRP and Malaya, Philippines. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Coming up tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk a little history. There is a historian who's written a new book about the last 400 years of history in India. And he also happens to be the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. So we'll talk history and about the 150th anniversary of the birth of Gandhi coming up later this year. And join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Mike Gilmore engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.